0: Hello, and welcome to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan, and in this episode, I continue my conversation with my former on screen daughter, Ruth Gilligan, the down to earth high achiever about empathy and how walking in someone else's shoes can take us towards solutions to what ails society. We had a fabulous conversation and flipped from one fascinating topic to the next. We covered quite a range, motherhood and mad cow disease, uh, identity and Irishness, tradition and modernity, integrity, what it means to be a woman, babies and borders, but time and again, we came back to the value of storytelling and empathy. Enjoy. But I do want to talk about your impact work, which is pretty incredible. You work for Narrative 4. Do you want to just tell tell us a little bit about
2: that? Yeah, very gladly. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Narrative 4 is an organisation that was founded in about 2012, 2013 by the Irish writer Colin McCann, who is kind of a huge hero of mine in terms of his writing. I think he's an incredible, he's my favourite author. And, you know, I kind of love that he... You know, is is from also from Dublin, pretty near where I grew up, but writes these books uh, all over the world, different cultures, different portions of history, different little niches of society, um, and he's all about kind of, you know, learning about about others through through stories and through literature. So um, I've always kind of admired his work, but yeah, I found out that he he founded this this organization, um, and basically, what Narrative Four does is he uses storytelling to bring together young people from different backgrounds, and crucially, to try and foster empathy Um, and they do this through their main kind of way of doing this is through something called the story exchange and basically what that involves is bringing together two groups from different backgrounds maybe different countries or different sides of the tracks or different parts of the same city or whatever Um, and they bring the two groups together and then everyone gets partnered off and in your pairs you would swap a story from your own life so something that's somehow meaningful to you or defines you in some way and then you come back to the group and you tell your Partner story back to the group in the first person. So I would say, hi, my name is Sabina, and when I was 16, this thing happened to me, and this is how it's felt, and it's the impact it's had on me, and you literally kind of imagine your way into your partner story, and, and, and quite literally kind of step into their shoes. So it's a really kind of simple methodology, but, you know, Narrative Four uh, column now lives in the States, so it's, it's, it's predominantly an American organization, but they're now doing this work all over the world, working with kids in, in the US but also Mexico and South Africa and Palestine and Israel and Ireland Um, and I just think it's like a really kind of practical application of you know the idea that stories can bring people together and can help us develop empathy and and learn about the lives of others so um, when I started my job as an academic myself in 2014 I I just dropped Narda for an email just to be like hello I love the sound of this can I get involved or what do I what do I do Um, And basically, they were actually, as it happened, about to go to Belfast to do a story exchange between a group of girls from a Protestant school and a group of girls from a a Catholic school. So they invited me along just to meet them all and also to watch a story exchange in action. Um, And, you know, the idea sounds great on paper, but to actually see it in practice and and the impact it had on those girls and and how they all arrived that morning to Ulster Hall and, and wouldn't even look each other in the eye and then by the end of the day how they were all laughing and talking and joking and finding all this common ground was just like so moving that I was like, yeah, I, I want in. Um, and kind of ever since then, I've been working for the organisation and doing projects on their behalf in the UK and, and further afield. And I just think, I think they're
0: amazing. I think it's incredible and I think it's needed more now than ever. I mean, that lack of empathy, you know, it's at the very root of prejudice and stereotyping and a part of... Yeah how we have sort of divided society um, you know uh, along certain lines (laughs) and I mean that can go anywhere from dividing males from females but uh, dividing blacks from white or Catholics from Protestants or um, you know people from working class areas from people from middle class areas and it it leads to this othering Um, I I think you talk about that as well and and I feel it strongly sort of even in the area that I'm interested in I think there's a terrible othering of um, older people you know calling people the elderly and and you know even how they're talked about in the context at the moment as if they're somehow another species so just us when we're older and it's because we sort of isolate them and it's causing a problem too at the moment we you know put a lot an awful lot of older people in nursing homes who who probably don't want to be there and would rather um live in the community um if they had the proper supports there but it's because people don't get the opportunity to connect and you know once people do connect on a on a human basis, then they start to see commonalities uh, rather than differences. But the problem is, society as we've set it up um, doesn't allow for that connection in any real or meaningful way. It, you know, generally, when the connection happens, when the two sides, if it is that way, meet, it's usually at a point of conflict. Um, and I think that's getting worse and worse because we have social media, so people don't even get to see each other in real life. And I think, if gosh, if you look at some of the the trolling and comments on, on social media they really could do with the dose of Narrative 4 you know just yeah. to, to, no, I agree, to yeah. get some empathy yeah
2: it's also worth mentioning
0: that like Narrative 4 actually have a centre now down in Limerick um, they do actually I read about that that's that the fantastic um, I think did you le- sort of lead that particular project I read about it I in was, The Guardian I, mean, I, I was
2: part of the, yeah so well I, I did a project um, in 2018 between a group of teenagers I brought a group of teenagers from the UK over to Ireland and we did a story exchange between them which was amazing because as you say talking about a point of conflict it was right around all the height of the Brexit discussions and you know the English were saying all these things about the Irish and the Irish were saying all these things about the English and we were like oh god here we go again so to get those teenagers in a room to just connect as human beings regardless of where they're from and and realising as you said there was so much common ground was was so timely and and so important and and it's also worth saying that down in Limerick you know they've got a, a a permanent site there in Art Forest. So they run very regular projects and some of the work they do is between older members of the community and um, transition year students.
1: Oh,
0: excellent. Because actually that was one of the questions I was going to ask you because I, anything that I sort of read about it seemed to be sort of with younger people and that's a critical point to do it. But I think we mustn't sort of give up. I mean, really, we could do it with people of all ages of the community around various different things. I mean, empathy... Um, you know empathy is, is something that uh, it 's really kind of complex but it' it 's so critical and and important and um, in a way w- what 's really reassuring um you know about narrative four is you know it really does demonstrate and practice how empathy can be learned and in a very moving way i mean really when you read some of those stories I, I, you know on on these podcast notes i i'll 'll place links to um ruth 's website and and she has links out there to some of the projects they're well worth a visit and a look um, and people telling other people's stories um, and being very moved by them as they're telling the story you see that's what's wonderful is and, and I mean in part that's the brain and in part that's what real acting is about Ruth would you agree it's, it's not about pretending it's about being
2: yeah I agree. And I, I would also extend that to be honest, also to do with to do with writing and even to do with reading. Like I think that, you know, when you read a great book and you you literally step into a character's shoes and you you feel the texture of their world and their life, like you're suddenly transported to being that person. And that's why I do truly believe that like books and stories can allow you um, to, to develop your empathy in a way that very few things
0: But also importantly, as well um, in your self awareness, because I I think that's kind of linked with empathy as well, and it's linked with um, very Western in a way. We're very egocentric in how we view, um, you know, the world and culturally, or ethnocentric, really, you know. um, And part of that is our educational systems, you know, where you're brought up. This is how we do it. You know, this is where, where you're really just taught stuff. Instead, I would rather an educational system that taught us how to think critically. And, you know, how to look and examine, um, you know, well, actually, you know, this is our history, but it's written by, you know, (laughs) it's written by us from our perspective. And, um, you know, these are just moral standards, not the only moral standards. Do you know that that these things are all sort of culturally developed? And and I think that happens. And and that's part of the problem, you know, when when you eventually... Um, and I mean, the problem is how we respond, not multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is fantastic, but where the the, the conflicts arise is from, uh, you know, people coming from a place that there is only one way, i.e. the way we were brought up and the, you know, the morals and that we have without understanding or even taking a moment to consider that, well, actually, these other people feel the exact same about theirs. And, and really, we need to just have more, as, as you said, empathy and and from there, you can have greater understanding, and where necessary, compromise as opposed to conflict. And I think that's what I find so challenging about social media is that, um, and also what you sort of see with current world leaders that we, some of the current world leaders that we have, is, and this is around language, is where um, it's interesting. If you do analysis of, of language around conflict around politicians. You know, prior to to great wars or to um, any kind of political conflict, the language becomes very simplistic and it becomes uh, it's bifurcated. It it's just us and them. It's black or white. You're with us or you're against us. And there's no nuance and there's no color. Whereas then, if you actually analyze language coming up to, for example, where the Berlin Wall came down, where the Iron Curtain came down, those kind of things, or where you actually reach a peace agreement, you see much more color in. The language, much more depth, much more understanding, and I guess really what it is is it's empathy and understanding cultural differences and realizing that the only way forward is through that that depth. And I think unfortunately we're reverting at the moment to uh, a more us or them. Um, certainly with some leaders that we have, but also I do think social media um, feeds into that because that seems to be the way on Twitter. That you know, for example, where it can happen, you make a point and then it's like a pile-on of people who just disagree.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And, and there was a gorgeous, I mean, it's worth looking up. Uh, Obama made an incredible commencement speech in, I think it was... 2004, where he talks about uh, this idea. He says a lot of people talk in this country about the federal deficit, but actually I think we need to talk about the empathy deficit and our inability to put ourselves in the shoes of the laid off steel worker or the woman who cleans my dorm room or just other people whose experience might be different from ours and our inability to imagine what life must be like for them or crucially, what my life would be like if I were them. Um, We've just lost that ability and that, as you say, is responsible for, for so many issues.
0: For so many things and I think it works both ways. I mean I think also what I find um, where there's lack of empathy too is that it is um, everything just comes down to economic status. Yeah. Now you know and people saying, you know say oh yeah but that it's all right for you in your position of where you have X amount of money or whatever and absolutely no empathy for somebody who's famous who maybe have mental health issues and and I think that's where you end up with actually somebody like Carolyn Flack you know that there, it's not a human being and you know what hey she's famous she has all that stuff and she has the money that goes with it and so we can say all sorts of things about her and there's not a human being there instead of actually going you know what sometimes and i said this frequently sometimes the more money you have uh, if you're susceptible to depression or anxiety the greater your depression because you've got everything that everybody has wished for you can buy everything you want but yet you still experience depression you know because it's a mental health issue. And it can even be worse because sometimes at least with other people, they're saying, oh, if I only could do that, yeah, <laughs> you know, if I only could have that, there's still sort of an essence of hope. But it is about sort of experiencing three-dimensional people as opposed to sort of cardboard stereotypes. And, and that takes me back into your most recent book, The Butcher, The Butchers, rather, um, which is a fantastic read and very interesting characters. Although I think when... when um, it because the context is something that I have never heard of before it's kind of easy for that to take over but the characters themselves are, 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 are really really fascinating you want to tell us a little bit about the characters and the, the book itself yeah absolutely so in a nutshell the,
2: um, the Butchers is you know it's set in the Irish borderlands in 1996 during the BSE crisis so I seem to be doing nothing but talking at the moment about how there may or may not be some parallels between that period and the research I did, and and the current situation, um, I think the characters. worth mentioning because it's set there's four different points of view in the novel there's a mother and a daughter and a father and a son and the book the book is about many things and one of the things for me that I think it's it's most crucially about is a kind of almost like a turning point in Irish history between Ireland kind of transitioning almost from a pretty old-fashioned nation into something a bit more modern you know 1996 is the year the divorce legislation was in place it's three years after homosexuality was decriminalized the Celtic tiger is beginning to roar like uh, the troubles are nearly over so it's moving into this new phase into this kind of forward looking progressive nation um, but obviously you know the past and uh, the old ways aren't aren't dead just yet so that's why as I said I have these four points of view the, the, the mother and daughter and the father and son because it's about different generations and the tensions between those generations and kind of what is passed on between generations and, and what is lost for better or for worse So so those characters were way for me to kind of examine um, the old the old way and the new way um, and and those two things rubbing up against each other.
0: But also, yeah, and but also interesting in 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 terms of uh, you know, I mean, the the particular butchers that you talk about, you know, I mean, it's, it's actually something that I never heard about. So it's it's even sort of it's almost it, that is was a hangover from a time way beyond nineteen, you know, way before nineteen ninety six. I wouldn't have been aware that that kind of thing was was happening.
2: Yeah. So the, I mean, the butchers, they're like. A group of um, a group of men who travel around Ireland, performing this kind of ancient type of cattle slaughter, um, which you know used to be very common, but most people have have stopped believing in. But there still are some people who are who are clinging on to this old this old superstition or this kind of old folkloric ritual. So again, you know, there's a lot of folklore in the book. Because one of the things that really interests me about Ireland is that I mean, even now, uh, you know, there is a lot of superstition and and folklore and myth and legend that we kind of hold on to even, as I said, as we are kind of a forward-looking, progressive, modern country and that tension between... tradition and modernity is kind of fascinating to me so the butchers themselves as a group you know you've got on the one hand you've got them and then on the other hand you've got this kind of very real life you know the BSE crisis the implication that was having on Irish the Irish economy Irish politics um so it's it's kind of fact and fiction it's folklore and and real life political events rubbing up against each other so so yeah there's a lot going
0: on but. and and very very interesting female characters in it too you know yeah i think mean, um, that was
2: really important to me i think there's you know the irish rural canon has, has a lot of great books you know i think someone like McGahern or even the poetry of patrick cabana you know we've got some really great male writers writing about rural ireland and life on farms and even in the borderlands but but i was just really conscious that like there aren't enough of them with female voices and, and what are the what are the farmers wives doing what are they up to and how do they fit into this 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 picture of isolation
0: and transition yeah and i mean i find that interesting too i mean it, it, it's kind of in a way around identity ready to pop the question the jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds
1: and they're ready to ship to your door
0: so much of what we think, you know, can be influenced by, you know, stories that mightn't even be true, you know. And when that comes to identity, uh, and, and I know you're interested in, you know, um, cultural boundaries. um, And something that fascinates me is like Irishness. What is Irishness? You know, I mean, you know, the whole nation state things is really only a few hundred years old. That's why I always feel we're human before we're anything else. And that I think is where something like empathy is so important, because if you just acknowledge that you're human before you're anything else, then you connect with another human at the level of you both being the same. Whereas if you're an Irish human, then you have history when you look at an English human. If you're a white human, you have history when you look at someone of a, you know, a, a brown human. So um, I think it's very interesting um it's funny, you know, across your your recent novels um, and your work with the narrative, um, you know, um, obviously your work as an author is to induce empathy. We ha- you know, your books won't matter damn if we don't care about your characters. You know your work around the narrative is empathy. Um, the, the the identity thing as well. I um, I mean I know I think you wrote um, I don't know whether it was an essay or an article. You know you know who knows an Irish Jew. I actually responded going I do I do. <laughs> I actually worked with some. Um, uh, I and I knew them through my acting. Shimmy uh, Marcus was a fabulous uh, director and then I suppose got to know some of his family etc. But it kind of is a rarity. But that's another book. Um, that is on my to be read list. I haven't read it yet. But that's Ninefold's make a paper swan is that
2: right yeah
0: yeah, yeah. that was Did the previous I one correctly. 2016 and, it came out. And, and what's fantastic is like you know the, i see it, it's funny we can't help maybe it's just the empathy I, I i think sometimes with it's interesting i i i was a counselor for a while for the rape crisis center um and when i went to study psychology um my original driver was to become a clinical psychologist you know to treat patients one-to-one but through the counseling and um, particularly the rape crisis center i realized that i had too much empathy and i could handle my um I could access it very easily and that's probably I I think one thing that I was able to draw on as an actor um you know because it is about you know being able to access those feelings very easily so um sort of there was a journey there for me in realizing that whilst you know counseling individuals on the phone you know it was good for them at the time it wasn't necessarily good for me and ultimately in the longer term um uh I I think too much empathy can interfere with um progress for, you know, in a counseling situation. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, that's a good way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, I learned about myself that that I, I need to make a difference. That's absolutely critical to me. I need to, my work needs to have impact. But what I realized then over time is that I can have that in different ways. It doesn't have to be one-to-one. Initially, I thought I would have it through research. I still do research and I still think that's important. But actually, I found my impact, you know, through my talks, through my animations that I make, through the books, through spreading. Um, you know, information and empowering people—they can do whatever they want um, with it afterwards. But um, it comes from sort of the same place. So I think identity is 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 interesting, and I think that kind of goes back as well with your own identity as you were growing through your teenage years. You know, as you as as you grew, your your identity changes. It's not a single thing. And uh, you know, that's you, you have a need to write different books now, and I'm sure that will that will change. Um, you know, as you go forward as well. Um, as you explore you know different topics or, or face different things in your own life yeah
2: absolutely I mean I'm already working on number six and it's something
0: totally different again so yeah I like to fantastic um, to jump around <laughs> you can't share anything about that yet
2: I know I mean I'm kind of happy to I mean it's pretty it's really early days but um, this is moving actually ironically a little bit closer to home again but it's a uh, it's a novel about um, a woman who is in her early 30s trying to figure out whether or not she wants to become a mother. Um, ah. and it's jumping around a lot in time with her relationship with her own mother. Um, and also she's an artist. So there's a lot in there about kind of making art, making babies. What's it all about? So, so yeah, very much inspired by.
0: Right. So you'll you have to listen to, I spoke to, um, one of my other guests on this podcast is Joanne McNally, the comedian. Ah. And so I spoke to her about that. We met actually, um, on a documentary, which, which you might be able to catch on player because it was replayed again, um, only about a week or two ago and it's called Baby Hater uh, and so Joanne McNally was going through sort of something you know similar in you know well do I need to have a baby, do I have, it and I have a career and you know she was kind of concerned she didn't have maternal instinct and I was sort of brought on as the psychologist you know or the neuroscientist to give that perspective and I was sort of saying to her well I wouldn't expect you to have a maternal instinct till you actually have a baby it's the drive to have a baby that you're talking about and that's very different and that has changed because we now have control over if and when we have a baby, but as women only up to a certain point. So you have a body clock talking at you and trying to distinguish between whether it's your body clock talking, whether you're having a natural drive, um, or whether you feel a societal pressure to be a mother or not. It's a fascinating topic. So you might find actually, we we chat a little bit about it, um, I think in the podcast, but the documentary um, is of interest. Oh, I definitely love that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And and, I mean, I have several friends who chose not to have kids, you know, Um, and and that's a Really, really, and I'm glad you're covering that topic. And maybe we'll come back and talk about that um, again. You know, because so many societies define women by motherhood um, I- in a way, and and a, a presumption that if you don't have kids, you're either infertile, barren, or, or actually you're a baby hater. <laughs> if you know what I mean? You know that you're someone who is somehow that, that means something else. You know, so it's a it's a really interesting um, topic to explore, and I'm sure it will really um, resonate with lots of people.
2: Well, that's, yeah, that's hope. But it's very strange when you, it's always the way when a new book comes out, you know, I'm kind of knee deep in thinking about and starting on the next one. So part of my brain is thinking about, babies and art and what it means to be a woman. And then I go back and I do interviews about the butchers and I'm like, oh yes, mad cow disease. Yes, that's what I need to talk about. So it's quite weird
0: <laughs> flipping between the two and being like, which one do I, which one do I think? About now? <laughs> I know, I know. Cause in the midst of all this, my next book is due on the 30th of April. Oh, lovely. Good. Um, so, um, but that's funny. It's been uh, challenging. You see, it, that's, what's interesting too, about how you write, you know, I mean, I know a lot of novelists and writers have to do research of sorts, but then some don't, you know, that it, you know, it's very much writing, and um, my writing is always involves a lot of research. And and um, uh, you know, I could I I could feel that with you, like with your um, the one about the Irish Jewish population. Um, you did a lot of research to try and you know immerse yourself in that and 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 understand it. So your books are very informed, and and it's I don't know whether it's to do with your academic background that um, or or integrity maybe is what it is that your first few books were very much from your own experience informed by your own experience but then you move on and you know other people's lives interest you and you want to be authentic and so you do considerable research to understand that and now now you're sort of coming back to write about something that's um very relevant in your own life but you're doing it in a very research focused way
2: yeah that's absolutely yeah and I think you're right in identifying those two motivations I think on the one hand like the kind of more research-based books as as you would call them like I am just part of it comes from curiosity and I think it is as you say an academic background I love the research portion I love spending weeks on end in the British Library rifling through old archives and reading books and and finding out things that I didn't know about and I love also going out and interviewing people and and meeting people and and learning about their background and their culture and their world whether that's as you say a member of the Irish Jewish community or whether that's a a farmer who has a a small cattle farm up in in Monaghan you know these I love just chatting to people and learning about their worlds um so part of it is to do with with just curiosity and as i said being a bit of a nerd who likes doing all the research but then the other side as you say is to do with integrity and and trying to get it right and if you are choosing to take that leap to right beyond your personal experience. I think, you know, there are perils and pitfalls and you have to do it in a thoughtful and informed and careful and meticulously researched way. So it's um it's kind of a twofold um approach. But as I said, I, I do really, really love it.
0: Yeah. Well never never use your curiosity. And I, I, I think we could, you know, along with empathy, because I think they kind of are linked, you know, um you can't create empathetic characters unless you're curious about them and and understand how they, they tick really. And, and that's at the storytelling, you know, associated with your narrative for. That's what it's about. It's about being curious about another person and saying, Well, why do you do that? What, what is it about that? What is your story? Um, and the thing is, our entire lives are about stories. Who we are is just a story that we tell ourselves. Um, and sometimes that story that we tell ourselves about who we are has been influenced by things that other people have said to us. And I think that's very empowering. Because because actually, if you take that time and question your own story, you can change your own futures or even your own past, you know, and kind of revisit it. And um, that's why I think storytelling has survived so long in human culture, human society is because it is a way for us to connect as social beings, but a way for us to to move forward and, and kind of work together.
2: Yeah, I think that's completely true. And I also just want to add that like, and this is not this is probably a discussion for another day, but I think it's one of the things that in both my most recent novels, I also find that playing out on like a national level. I think the story, especially within the context, you know, you already mentioned the idea of Irishness, what that even means. I think the story that we tell about our country or the stories that we've told about it in the past and and how even in recent years, we've started to tell a slightly different story. I think that's been that's so interesting to kind of think about and, and how we kind of the myths we tell ourselves and then the you know kind of unpicking them a little bit and, and acknowledging some things that we've been keeping hidden and yeah I think I think it works on a, an individual level but also in a national level as well
0: oh uh, absolutely absolutely and national being a word like nationalism and and sort of teasing that apart and and I mean I think I read in one of your essays you were talking about um uh don't ask me to remember the title it, it, it had a word narrative or something in yeah. it that I kind of went okay I have to look that one up but um, I think you mentioned and I just thought it kind of jumped out at me that you mentioned I think you quoted from Salman Rushdie and he was talking about the dissolution of borders around the globe um, and you know that that the way we are and the way we live in society the borders has have dissolved now that was from a, actually really only sort of a few years ago and actually how our narrative has changed where you have world leaders talking about building up borders and then we now have and I'm referring to Trump and Mexico and that type of narrative but now we're living through you know this pandemic and borders have become something else, something entirely different not about nationalism, not about countries but about containing a disease and I'm kind of wondering how that will play out.
2: Yeah and I, I and also back to the, our discussion about empathy I think this idea that at the moment we are all literally physically being encouraged to stay separate from one another Um, and the kind of potential implications that has on um, yeah kind of erecting divisions as opposed to a sense of connection is potentially
0: scary. Yeah, it's fascinating though, though I think because we all have to isolate, there's a sense of connection. I hope
2: so. I hope that's, yeah, I hope that's correct. Um, You
0: know, we're kind of in the same boat. However, I think it's very, very dangerous territory. And I did a small podcast at one of my booster shots on loneliness. Um, It changes the brain. You know, being isolated from other humans changes how your brain functions. And actually interesting, and I've just realized this now as I'm talking to you. Interestingly, what happens when you're isolated from uh, society for whatever reason, uh, loneliness really is just a—it's um, just a, a warning, like hunger, to say you need to get connected. Um, however, it becomes chronic, and uh, if it becomes chronic, what happens is um, because your brain sort of realizes that um, uh, we don't do well in isolation. We, you know, there's nobody else in the in the group to protect you. Um, it doesn't let you go into full deep sleep. It also basically really what happens is your fear centers um, ramp up and you start to see fear where there is none. Um, you also sort of lose some of your social skills and you become um, less empathetic. Oh, there you <laughs> so, go. Yeah, you do. So when you connect with other people, because is that cause kind of myth that, you know, when people are socially isolated or, you know, on the edges of society and people sort of say, oh, well, they're an odd one. You know, they're odd anyway. You know, they kind of know social skills. And the research would say that people don't become socially isolated because they've poor social skills. It's when you become isolated and lonely, you lose your social skills, but also you lose that natural empathy where if you and I were speaking face to face, we would be, and I'm doing it here anyway, you know, I'm nodding when you say certain things and I'm kind of smiling in agreement when you say other things. They're very natural, empathetic responses. Um, they're sort of shut down if you've been isolated for a long time because your, your, your brain really has you in... Um uh, high alert, uh, oh, you don't know whether you can trust this person, you know, keep your distance, don't trust what they're saying, and so your empathy goes down, and that's very, very important to remember, and I think it's something that we'll have to work on um you know if and when we do get back to a more regular society is to be very conscious that we are going to be mistrustful um and less empathetic perhaps than we had been in the past, and I think it's something we should be working on through this, which I think thankfully we have things like Zoom. I loved your book launch. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) I saw it online. You had, uh, just to explain, um, roots, uh, as with many authors, I feel so sorry for so many people working up towards your book launch and then you can't have one. But you innovatively had one on Zoom and you had about 100 people at your book launch. This fabulous screen
2: full of people. It was, I mean, it was actually, I was like, I found it truly quite emotional. Um, It was like, yeah, I mean, we had like 100 little screens, but there were a few people in each of them. So I think it it was more than 100 faces wow. um, and, it, and all, from all over the world cousins from Abu Dhabi and friends from Australia and pals from California all logged in to to toast the book and you know I made a little speech and my editor made a little speech and yeah it was really cool. it was really moving and, and actually what was really moving was afterwards you know lots of people sent me nice messages to say congrats blah, 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 but also to say wow I really Enjoyed that, and I really needed that. Like I think yes. feeling part of something communal, like obviously having, yes. you know, you have your chats face on Zoom or Facetime, or whatever, with your family members or friends, and there might be a couple of you on the screen. But the, that idea of being part of, I suppose, what we would refer to now as a mass gathering, um, being feeling that kind of air of something communal, I think people find really affecting. Um, so I'm so glad that the that the whole occasion was not just beneficial to me, but that actually it seemed a lot of people got something out of it, which was really lovely. No, it
0: is and I, I think we need more and more people doing it and I gave a talk the other night and actually if I have to do it again I'm going to say please can you put some faces screens on the screen so that I feel like I'm actually you know that I'm getting the feedback because that's what I miss actually from my talks is, is not so much the giving the talks but it's the audience to see their faces and and sort of move with that um, but I, I, I think I'm reading a lot online which is the good side of, of these things is that people are connecting and I've been doing it myself connecting via. Zoom or whatever that party one is, or, or, or whatever app that it is you use, um, but they're actually connecting with people that maybe they've been meaning to connect with for a while and haven't gone around to do it in person. It's actually easier to do it, you know, to do it from from your home. We had, I had one. I, I mean, I've gone out for drinks with friends, and I've even put my makeup on and, and dressed up, even though I'm sitting in my living room. Yeah. But like, I've met friends, you know, where there two of them are in London, one in one in the north of Ireland, one in Hoth and myself here in Clontarf, and and you know had a lovely time. Um, And I think we have to do more of that. I just feel very, very sorry for some of the people who um, aren't online and and connected in that way. And I think we have to find a way to do that. I think there has to be, you know, someone has to deliver, you know, iPads or something and say, look, you just press that button and you will be connected. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Because I think it's like sometimes
2: we can be a bit, you know, naive to the fact that, oh, yeah, the whole world is connected and everyone's got Wi-Fi. And, you know, even, like I obviously I work at a university and even at the moment they're trying to figure out what to do about students and assignments that are due and the exams in the summer and all of that and
0: yeah we may not even be going back to university in September yeah, that's what, you know that's what we're being
2: told as well but yeah. you know and you know the, the the idea that actually we have to work off the assumption that there will be some students who who don't have access to online materials or whatever and I think that's quite sobering because I think you just kind of do slightly live in your kind of you know, first world bubble, bubble. thinking that yeah. yeah, everyone this is thank God this happened in a technological age, but actually not everyone has the access to the things that we're talking about. No, and
0: and from my perspective, you know, in the area that I'm kind of working, you know, I mean, you know, plenty of over seventies are online, but plenty aren't, and over eighties and and they're the ones who have been told, you know, to stay inside, and they're actually following the rules probably too too much. You know, they're not. You know, there's stories of people who haven't spoken to anyone for weeks, um, and that's you know that's as likely to kill them as, you know, COVID-19. So we have to find ways to get those people um, connected. So anyway, I should sort of wind this towards the close. One thing that I do say, Ruth, um, and, and I ask a, a lot of my guests, is ask guests whether there is any tips that they would like to share, whether it's from their life experience, um, uh, whether uh, it's around if you wanted to be a writer or if people wanted to get involved in, you know, Narrative 4 or you know anything really that you want to say that you'd like to um, that you'd like to share with people Great.
2: Um, I think my I think I have two two suggestions to make at this point um, the, the first is, is pretty simple I would really urge you to just check out narrative4.com the number four, um, com and to learn about the organization what they do you know that their work is incredible and as I said it's spreading all over the world and it's very active in Ireland and increasingly in the UK and I Think you know, as Sabina and I have been talking about, so many different people, communities, groups could benefit from from connecting with others and, and developing their empathy. So I just think get in touch because there, there's there's. Ways that you can get involved in the organization and bring them to you. Um, my kind of life mantra, I suppose, and I can't believe I'm, I'm admitting that I have a life mantra, but in, in general, <laughs> I, my, my, my rule of thumb is just is don't do things by halves. I'm a big believer that if you're going to do something, just throw yourself in 110%. And even if it doesn't work out, you know, I admitted earlier to the book I wrote that never saw the light of day, to other things I've tried and failed, you know, I, these are the things that you never hear about with people but I guarantee you every successful person out there has a million failed ventures tucked away in a drawer somewhere but I just think you know I would rather try and fail than to only half-heartedly give it a go and it not work out so I I just I believe in kind of launching myself 110% into everything whether it ends up coming to fruition or not
0: You know and and that's kind of you know I call this podcast super brain because um, it's not about being brainy at all but it's about actually harnessing your brain so you can reach your true potential, you know, optimize who you are. And and I think that's really what you're talking about there as well. It's just give it your best shot, you know, just go for it. And, and, um, I, I think that's absolutely fantastic advice because the fact of the matter is, you know, when you are giving something your best shot, you're lost in the moment, you're doing it and you're enjoying life. And even if you do something like, as you said, you, 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 you had that novel that you say never got published, but you learned a huge amount from it yeah so
2: much and i just think also it's very it's just the best way not to have any regrets looking back because i think you know if you do only give something you know a half-hearted go almost because you're second guessing against the fact that it might not work out you'll never know looking back whether actually if you've given it your all it might have been a success so i just think you know it, it does mean that you're more liable to look back and have have regrets or things that you that didn't, you know, you didn't pursue hundred percent. Whereas if you go for it and it doesn't work out, you'll always know, well, look, I tried and it didn't happen, but I, there's nothing more I could have done um, so I just think that's a, a more uh, just a better way to live I suppose
0: Yeah I think you know and I, I think I think you're so right because um, the second guessing yourself I think sometimes if you just question that why are you second guessing yourself and you often find it, one of my other guests was Hilary Fannin um, the columnist and um, also author but um, she kind of said she held on to something that she was told in school at the age of four you know um, pretty much you're stupid on your week. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, she is an, an Irish Times columnist. Uh, she's written a memoir and her actual, her book, oh, you have to check it out. Oh, I know
2: my mother is, she's just finished it and she's supposed to be posting it over
0: to me. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic read. Um, and I can understand why it might resonate with your mother as well. It's kind of, you know, there's that, um, Hillary would be the same age as me too, but I, I it's a beautifully written book. So I think it will um, resonate with anybody because it's about very real people. Um, but she, let that story that she was told as a child influence her for years Mm. in the believing that you know she you know wasn't good enough and and sometimes that's where the self limiting thoughts come from or um, from uh, what others might think yeah Yeah. who cares yeah. who cares you're the one who has to live with yourself and you've only got one life um, Ruth it's just been so fantastic to reconnect with you um, you've, you're have you an absolute inspiration what you've achieved uh, already in life just I can't imagine what's going to come next um, I so look forward to it and I will continue following your career like any mother would I <laughs> <laughs> well, no Sabina it's been an absolute joy I can matter
2: to you all day long so thank you so much for having me it's been really really a pleasure Ruth
0: is one to watch, not only as an author and academic, but also as an activist. I have a feeling that she will do great things and continue to have impact. Her work with Narrative 4 is, I think, just the first step towards making a difference on a grand scale. I'll include links to Ruth's website and Narrative 4 in the show notes for this episode. My name is Sabina Brennan and you've been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Subscribe on ACAST, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, if you enjoyed it, rate it, like it, and share it. Stay safe.
1: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.